Buongiorno, buonasera, salve, and benvenuti to the Salento Files. I'm your host, Margot Ferracci, and this is episode four. Show me the child of seven, and I'll show you the state of the nation. This will take about 20 minutes to listen to, so come with me as we welcome the arrival of spring in the Salento. So the cherry blossoms are out, the locals are taking La Passeggiata in the evenings and the Salento is transformed. Spring officially commenced on March 21 and this episode is a child of the Pullian sunshine created on our balcony overlooking the olive trees and our neighbours backhoeing. We've already managed to be the victims of a hit and run on our brand new car. The damage is minimal but enough to be annoying. Interestingly, the guys at the construction site across the road on which our car is parked were quick to front up, unsolicited to our house, point out the damage to us and assure us it wasn't them. There was something very much like Hamlet's player queen about it. Tony the builder doth protest too much, but we are without evidence and we'll we'll take ourselves off to the insurer. In all though, the sun and the energy of the locals have combined to give us the irritating smugness of people who made the right decision about their 2012 destination. The rest of Italy is still cold, but we're not. So first things first, after the release of episodes one, two and three in early March, the Salento Files has received a lot of feedback, as well as being downloaded in countries as diverse as Malaysia, Turkey and Lithuania. So it's time to respond to your feedback and answer some of your questions. Firstly, a lot of people have asked, is that Mitch on the bongos? My answer is yes, that's absolutely Mitch. And that's Eve on the clarinet. Charlie, of course, holds the metronome and does miscellaneous percussion. We may take the show touring in Europe this summer, so watch your gig guides for details. Second question, what's the Salento? Mm, Probably should have explained this one, shouldn't I? The Salento is the extreme southern region of Puglia, which is the extreme southern region of Italy, which is the extreme southern region of Europe's economic fortunes. Ugiano La Chiesa is smack bang in the middle of the Salento, or the Salento, as they call it in characteristic rough and ready local dialect. It's pretty much everything below Brindisi, where some of you might have gone to catch a ferry to the Greek islands back in your wild and crazy backpacking days. Speaking of dialect, the local Salentino dialect is actually closer to Sicilian dialects than those of the closer northern Puglia or Basilicata. Like everything, that's all because of the Greeks. All I know is that the locals shift into dialect when they don't want me to understand something. Fair enough, I'd do the same thing if I could. And now a few comments which I will deal with summarily. From Signore Marco T in Neutral Bay regarding my comments about an empty mind being the devil's playground. Signore Marco T says, I think my mind is the devil's playground whether it is empty or full, and maybe it is more like Disneyland for the devil when it's empty. Hmm, having known you for a little while, Marco, I tend to agree. From Signore Eduardo N, somewhere in the Middle East, asks, what's with the canned applause? My response is, well, Signore Eduardo, if that is your real name, what's with assuming it's canned? How do you know I'm not recording in front of a live studio audience like The Cosby Show? I'm offended. And from Stavro V in somewhere in suburban Melbourne, after listening to episode two, he says, I vote C for baptisms all round. My response is to be reminded of that Oscar Wilde quote that goes something along the lines of not wanting to belong to any club that would have me. 
Lastly, from the mailbag, many, many, many of you have commented on episode three about courage and how it made you think about your own courage and occasionally stupidity. Good, that's the point. Examples are easy to come by once we stop looking in lofty places. My year 12 chemistry teacher, Annie Ada, used to say very passionately, students, chemistry is everywhere. So is our courage. Now on with episode four, show me the child of seven and I will show you the nation. So I've discovered something. Word on the street amongst the parents at our school is that we, the Australian parents, are cruel. These parents have seen the kids screaming and running after us for the first couple of months of school and they've made a judgement on our parenting based on that. Anita is leading the charge here in this group appraisal of our family dynamic. I'm a bit surprised at her snap judgement. I kind of thought we knew each other a bit better than that. She has a daughter, Maria Chiara, to whom I teach English. She also has a son, Lorenzo, and he's in the same class as my children. As an aside, yes, they are both the children's real names. So I run into Anita a lot. I'm always keen to make conversation and she often asks me questions about Australia. Yes, the flight is a long time and quite expensive. No, we don't eat kangaroo for dinner every night. I even took the time a few weeks ago to email her, at her request, some beautiful vistas of Australian scenery. The Qantas ads are all on YouTube and excellent for that, by the way. So I was kind of taken aback when I was confronted with the fact that Anita, as well as a group of others, consider us cruel. Their view goes something like, imagine putting a child into a situation where they can't understand the language and they're so scared. Why would you do that? Now, I'm the first to say that on that small example of our parenting, I can see how someone with a lack of vision and nothing else to talk about could describe us as cruel. None of them have ever left the Salento and haven't seen how quickly kids can pick up totally foreign languages when they're immersed in them. They make this judgment from the luxurious position of being in familiar environs with their children surrounded by generations of their family. They don't believe it's possible for the kids to adjust and learn the language, thus eliminating their fear of the unfamiliar quite quickly. I, on the other hand, think that once we get through the initial adjustment phase, we're giving the kids a gift for life. They think I'm a tiger mum. It is tempting to become righteous and launch into a sermon about how it's none of anyone else's business. Wouldn't it be more constructive if the other parents tried to support us instead of gossiping, so on and so forth? But let's face it, people are people wherever you go and people love a bit of drama and something to talk about. So when you think about all that, you realise that with the very public displays of angst our children have been showing, we've pretty much been walking around with targets on our backs for two months. So the sermon will be shelved for now. Note though, if I were going to launch into that sermon, I could get malicious and petty. And if I were to get malicious and petty, I might say that if we want to start making judgments, I'd be happy to make some of my own, which may include commentary on the excessive application of eyeliners on mothers for the 9am school drop-off. Ladies, I would say, WTF is with the raccoon eyes in the morning. But I'm not like that, and neither are you. There's something more important to talk about here. You see, there is exactly the opposite reaction from people in Australia to what's been happening with the children. Every Australian I know has said, 
look, it'll be great for them in the long term. Hang in there. It will get better. They won't even remember this difficult part of their lives or words to that effect. Generally, the Australian approach would be to focus on the long-term benefits. Some pain now for some gain later. Contrast that with the allegations of cruelty and you start to get a feel that there's a big difference in the way we raise our children and therefore the way those children grow into adults and behave. The children of today are the adults of tomorrow and carry the culture which can determine the fate of a nation. Nelson Mandela says a nation should be judged not on how it treats its highest citizens but on how it treats its prisoners. The Salento Files, with dissembling authority, says that maybe a nation can also be judged on how it treats its children. Look into the nurseries, I say, and you'll get some answers as to the culture and fate of a country. So let's do that. As we do, I need to be sure to point out my position. It is vulgar and ungracious to enter someone else's country by choice, then criticise the lifestyle in that country. I'm here to think aloud about the differences, not to judge. You, however, dear listener, are free to judge as you see fit. So put your hands in the air and moralise like you just don't care. Also, it's important to note that I'm in the south, and there's south and then there's the south of Puglia. As much as attitudes vary between north and south Italy, it might also be that attitudes vary between here and, say, Naples. As an aside and for what it's worth, the local Pugliese, while acknowledging their own antiquated thinking on issues of the day like a woman's place in society or the home, still are insistent on mocking my Sicilian background, saying, Margot, but they are worse than us in Sicilia. So anyway, back to Italian kids. What happens with them? Well, when they cry, kids here are handed chocolate or lollies by parents, school teachers, the local butcher, strangers, anyone really. There's no thought given to dental hygiene, strong constitutions or health generally. It is just a way of shutting a kid up. And kids do cry, lots. They cry lots because they're tired. Generally, kids go to bed here after 10pm. Parents don't like fighting with their kids initially, and we all know that when you put your kids to bed, a fight usually ensues. Also, culturally, it is seen as being cold to your children if you want to put them to bed before you yourself head off. Why wouldn't you want to stay up with them all night until you yourself go to bed? Don't you enjoy every minute with them? We've just trudged through three months of winter. The following scenario has been extremely common. I'll be walking along, thinking of something else, when a stranger will stop me, point to the children and admonish me for two things. Firstly, not covering them up enough, and secondly, having them outside at all. Now, it might be 10 degrees and the kids might be wearing goose-down Kathmandu jackets, but that won't matter. I really shouldn't have them out at all, is what old Tony will tell me. Interestingly, or perhaps predictably, these dressing downs from old Tony or his wife are never directed at Mitch, the children's obvious father. Kids don't go out in winter here at all. For all of December, January and February, 150 children at the school have been locked inside for eight hours a day. They are then bundled up into the Fiat Puntos in their hats, coats and scarves. If you can remember any of the Simpsons episodes when Maggie wears a snowsuit and looks like a big padded star, well, you're starting to understand. They are then taken home to watch TV from 4pm until bedtime. See previous comments. So what do you think is better? to get the kids out for a play on a 10-degree day or sit inside and watch TV? Well, I know what you'd say, but that's because you're cruel Australians who are cold and uncaring about your children. I've just mentioned that the kids get put into the car as soon as they leave school. 
Which brings me to another thing I can't work out and which Mitch has reminded me about. He's actually just wandered into the room, crowing about his trip to the market this morning. 30 free-range eggs for four euros. Pretty normal. I don't know when he's going to get over it. And asked what I'm working on. I've told him about the charges of cruelty pending against us. His response was to say, yeah, we're really cruel to make our kids wear seatbelts. What he's referring to is what the locals do with their children in cars. Toddlers and babies will sit up front in the passenger seat on a parent's lap, driving through any kind of traffic, or even stand on the console between the two front seats. Now, we are not in Vietnam, where, out of sheer economic necessity, five people need to pile onto one scooter. You've seen it. In the situations I'm talking about, the back seat is empty. Our car doesn't move unless all occupants are strapped in tightly. We say that's because we care about our kids' safety. They'd say, but the kids want to sit in the front, it's too hard to argue with them and it's lonely for the kids to be all the way there in the back seat on their own. They'd say, all your Anglo-Saxon rules and pesky seatbelts get in the way of good times and are just a nuisance. And having the final word in this forum, I say, tell that to Princess Diana's children. Charlie is learning his three hours doing lessons in our home with a local primary teacher, Carla. Carla has told me how strange it is to see us insisting at home on the kids saying please and thank you when they ask us for something. You know, the dance we all do with the kids and the dance we all did with our own parents when we were little. What's the magic word? What do you want and how do you ask for it? What do you say? All that, to us, tedious, but an absolute necessity if we are going to raise adults who can manage themselves and be polite in the world. To Carla, a revelation. She didn't know it was possible to insist on this behaviour from children. She's never seen parents and children do the please and thank you dance. She's told every every other teacher at school about it. They can't believe it either. Here, kids just yell for stuff and parents produce it. So it seems that while the Mitchell Faraci family holds few distinctions, I think we may safely boast that we are leaders in please and thank you in the Salento. I listen to the nuns a lot, and there's a lot more yelling in, our, in the schools here than in Australia. I get the feeling that these women are fed up with bearing the sole responsibility for setting boundaries. The kids are tired when they get to school, and they don't get a lot of boundaries at home. The nuns have dedicated their lives to the education of children and are really very committed and hardworking, so they're fed up with their situation. Now, the people in the Salento would say that children are at the centre of life, And I can see how that's true, and it is in many respects absolutely beautiful. Our children walk into a shop here, and they command the attention of everyone in the room, and it's like that with all children. If a child is crying here, every adult in the room will race over to her and offer kisses, cuddles, and of course lollies. An upset child is everyone's problem here. But what they do with that child is different to what we would do. Very quickly, the talking starts. The adults will insist all at once, very loudly and emotionally, that the child has to stop crying and that a lolly will fix it. Not once have I seen an Italian adult try to actually solve the problem the child is crying about or sort out an argument between two children, actually listening to what the kid is saying. It's all about bringing a swift end to the displeasure, usually by use of food, cuddles and telling the children they don't need to cry. Our own approach at home in Australia would probably be to stand back and let the parent take the child to a quiet place for a cuddle so they can calm them down and listen to what's wrong. That seems kind of odd and unfeeling to the Italians. They would say, 
how can we all stand here and ignore this poor crying child who needs cheering up? We all need to take responsibility for this. So if Italian kids are raised this way, what does that mean for them growing into Italian adults? The question that keeps coming to mind is discipline, doing hard, unpopular things to achieve a greater outcome. All the things I've talked about are relevant here. The difference on one hand between pleasing your children now, remaining popular with them and ignoring the possible outcomes in adulthood, or on the other hand, taking issue, falling out of their favour, but hoping the lessons will lead to them being more responsible adults. So what happens when you have a nation of people who've been raised in these different ways? How relevant is that to the deepening and generation-threatening crisis Italy is now in? Of course, there is no one determining factor and there are many factors beyond the control of the Italians. But I'm just thinking here about how people are raised to see themselves and their own place in the world. Italy's economic fortunes really, really matter. Italy has an economic responsibility to the world. To get some perspective, look at the other failing EU economies. Greece, Ireland and Portugal are the three countries currently living off Europe's bailout fund and the International Monetary Fund. And combined, combined, their economies make up less than 6% of the Eurozone. Italy's economy makes up 17% of the Eurozone. Look at what the demise of those first three countries has done to instill fear even as far away as Australia. What would the failure of Italy do to us? When we think about discipline, look at Italy's public debt. At 120% of gross domestic product, it stands at 1.9 trillion euros. Compare, compare that to the combined Greece, Ireland and Portugal public debt, which is around 640 billion euros. So are the problems Italy is experiencing now all derived from the 2007-2008 global crisis? Well, from 2000 to 2007, Italy's GDP grew at 1.5%, compared with 2.2% of the Eurozone overall. They were the glory days, but Italy's economy dawdled through them, and it's been dawdling for ages. There are no jobs for the kids, which will be talked about in a future Salento file, no spoiler alert required, and the question of the ageing population has not been acknowledged historically in economic policy. Overregulation restricts entrepreneurship. In some places, corruption negates commercial effort. And in the South, long-term youth unemployment isn't even worth mentioning in the same sentence as the current economic crisis. When I do, they reply, but Margot, it was always like this down here. Now you'll know about the recent political situation. Former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, the media mogul, lifelong narcissist and pioneer of the Bunga Bunga is out. And Mario Monti, the apolitical, ex-Goldman Sachs economic technocrat, is in. Berlusconi's efforts at fixing the situation consisted mostly of incremental alterations implemented at glacial pace, which were really just a distraction from his day job of defending legal cases and destroying evidence of his friendship with Colonel Gaddafi. Monty has been installed by the President without election and without popular support, and he doesn't have to worry about being liked. He's deregulating and deconstructing in a way that will surely cause defenestration. We've had truck strikes and petrol strikes and taxi strikes and everything in between. I know strikes are pretty common in Italy, but there are industries striking now that have never gone on strike before. 
All the previously protected industries are opening up to competition and it will surely mean commercial suicide or is it homicide at Monty's hands for some of them. So Monty is doing the job he was installed to do, making hard decisions and executing plans swiftly and he says, and this is a direct quote, Italy has piled up huge public debt because the successive governments were too close to the life of ordinary citizens, too willing to please the requests of everybody, and they were thereby acting against the interests of future generations. Draw your own conclusions. I'm just saying. Now, would we be any different culturally if Australia were faced with the same situation? Who knows? We can point to examples to support either point of view, but the fact is we're not staring down the barrel like Italy is, so it's pretty hard to say. I know that in Australia our politicians on both sides seem like slaves to focus groups and opinion polls, but it's a question of relativities. In Australia you've got flip-flopping on important issues as led by the results of focus groups. In Italy you've got lots of people retiring at 40 because they can get more from a government pension than they can by owning their business. And before Monty... There was no impetus to change that. So perhaps Monty is Italy's tiger mum. If one of the determining characteristics of being a tiger mum is that your kids, or in Monty's case, the people of Italy, resent you for imposing common sense boundaries, then he might be well on his way. As a rule, I'm against tiger mummery, but I'm not against Monty. Look, I don't know which approach is better, As a nation, Australians probably miss some things because we think a lot about the long term. And in Italy, the ever-present concern for the child surely could only be a positive for children growing up feeling loved and important. All I know is it's just very different. And the reason I came here is to see these different things and make me understand my own world better. So back to me being a cruel tiger mum. The car park mafia at school might be right. We may have been cruel. I'm sure our children would have agreed at the time, and I've always said that even Charlie and no one else will be the judges of my abilities as a parent. After two months, though, our kids race each other up the stairs to school and leap into the 70-year-old arms of Suor Geraldina, Sister Jerry, as we call her, for a big hello kiss. Every day brings new advances with their Italian language because they are immersed in it every day. And with winter over, they're even allowed to play outside now. In fact, I was out in the school playground this week with Evie. The now infamous Anita was there with her little boy Lorenzo. I was feeling self-conscious and bracing myself for more of Anita's unsolicited opinions of our family. Oblivious to all this, Evie raced over to a piece of play equipment, which is fun to play on with one person, but really much better with two. With the full force of her mighty lungs, Evie yelled out to Lorenzo, Lorenzo, vieni qui, giochi con questo. Lorenzo, come over here, play with this. Lorenzo raced over to join her. Anita saw the whole exchange and her jaw dropped. I looked up and smiled. Definitely a bit more than was warranted. And if I could have found the words in Italian, I might have quoted that great Australian Daryl Kerrigan and said, Suffer in your jocks, Anita. See you in two weeks. <laughs>